You know, sometimes searching or looking for something is fun, isn't it? Sometimes looking and searching can be exciting, it can be fun and rewarding. You know, I think about a scavenger hunt, right? Or, or sort of the high-tech version of that today is called geocaching, where you use a GPS and you go find things all over the place that people have hidden. Hide and go seek. Ever play hide and go seek? Yeah. Easter egg hunts, right? I mean, it's sometimes looking for something can be fun. Sometimes looking for something can be frustrating, right? Like your car keys. Where did I put those glasses? Oh, they're on my head, right? After you've searched the house over. And sometimes looking can be frightening. Like when you're missing a child in the grocery store and you don't know where she has gone. Or like my mother who would search for me in the department store and I would be hiding in one of those clothes racks. You know what I'm talking about? I always thought it was kind of funny. My mother did not think that, but searching, finding, whether it's fun, frightening, whether it's frustrating, we all at one point or another have had to look for something, haven't we, and searched for something. Well, in in the rest of Luke chapter 2, we will see all of those emotions excitement, frustration, and fear playing out as people search for Jesus. And first we're going to meet uh, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna for whom searching for and finding Jesus the Messiah was exciting. It was a rewarding moment for them. And then we're going to see Mary and Joseph who for them, they move from frustration to fear to frustration again as they realize that Jesus is missing. And then they finally find him in the Jerusalem temple. I mean, you've got to think about it. They've been entrusted with raising the Son of God and they lose him. Think about that, right? It was a scary moment for them. They you know, really blown it, Lord. You know, as he's, He was here and he's not here. So they have to go and find Jesus. And as we look at these examples of searching for and finding Jesus, I want us to keep in mind our own experiences, our own emotions of searching and finding or searching and not finding. And so first I want us to walk through the story together and then I want to draw out some implications for us today. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. These verses will not be on the screen. I want you looking in your Bible, whether that's a printed copy or a digital copy on a, on, a, on a tablet or a phone or something, I want you to look along with me in your copy of the Scriptures. And as we begin this, I want to clarify that, that in today's passage of Scripture, we're looking at three separate experiences, three different occasions are described here. The first two each contain two rituals that are going on, okay, beginning in verse 21, eight days after Jesus was born, he was taken to likely the local synagogue where he was circumcised and he was named. We saw the same thing happen earlier in Luke chapter 1 for John, Jesus' cousin, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. We had a very similar parallel story. So that's what's happening here in verse 21 where Luke writes on the eighth day, When it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. That's per the Jewish custom and the Old Testament law. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. 
Okay? Now, that's the first occurrence. We see two rituals, the circumcision and the naming. Okay? Then the next episode is in verse 22. This happens 40 days after Jesus has been born. And, and Mary and Joseph take Jesus, as the law prescribes, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And there, Mary will participate in a ritual and make an offering for her purification. That was what the law required after a woman gave birth. And because Jesus was the firstborn son, we read about this in Exodus, and I believe it's chapter 33, that, that where God says that because uh, the firstborn of the Egyptians was killed, every firstborn animal and every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord as a remembrance of what God did on that Passover when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. So Jesus is being taken to be dedicated, to be presented to the Lord in the temple as the firstborn son. Again, both of these things prescribed in the law of Moses. In fact, in these first six verses, we read four different mentions of the keeping and observing of the law of Moses. That tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that Jesus was Jewish. Reminds us of the Jewishness of Jesus. He was born to Jewish parents. He lived in a Jewish culture. He was raised Jewish. And it tells us that Mary and Joseph were very devout. They kept the law. They raised Jesus as the law prescribed a Jewish young man to be raised. And that's profound because Jesus came to fulfill the law, did he not? He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And so these are important matters that Luke is detailing for us. So let's pick that up in verse 22. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And this particular uh, part of the Old Testament law was, was a concession that was made to those who were poor. Rather than having to go out and buy a lamb to come and to present, you could substitute for that a couple of birds that would have cost very little. So that tells us also something about Mary and Joseph. They did not have a lot of, of resources. Now, so while all this is happening, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple court. So while Mary and Joseph were there, Simeon is moved by the Spirit to go there as well. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed 
and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Sort of a dark end to that story. Simeon begins by blessing them, but then he moves to a prophecy about what this child will mean, what this child will do, and how it will impact Mary. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Okay, now we skip ahead. We've gone eight days, 40 days, now we skip ahead 12 years. And here's the third episode. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Again, these are good Jewish parents. They are bringing their child every year to Jerusalem. You didn't have to do that, but they do that to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. That's akin to a family always coming to the Christmas Eve service every year. You know, it's just, it's just what you do. It's important. It's an important tradition and ritual. When he was 12 years old, now at 12 years old, as I'm sure you know, that would be the year of the Bar Mitzvah. That would be the year that Jesus would basically be declared a man. And he is now responsible for his own adherence to the law of the Lord. Okay, he is now responsible for his own faith. So at 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to their custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. He didn't tell mom and dad. Maybe he did and they didn't pay attention. Who knows? So he stays behind and they go on. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. So you've got to remember, they're... They've gone to Jerusalem with family and friends. You know, I mean, probably a whole company of people from Nazareth have gone down together. You know, so, so there's, there's family, there's friends, there's lots of children running around in this little caravan that's traveling. And so they think, oh, you know, Jesus is with, you know, so-and-so's kids. Jesus is over there with, with my cousin, you know, whatever. And so they don't quite realize till a day has passed that nobody has seen Jesus. And nobody knows where he is. They began looking for him among the relatives, their friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, after three days, can you imagine how beside themselves, the range of emotions from fear to frustration to anger to fear again to guilt. I mean, can you imagine what they're going through? They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, And asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. I like how 
Luke puts that in there. He's making sure that we understand this was not an act of disobedience on Jesus' part. Jesus was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Some implications from this story. How how do we search? How do we search for Jesus in our own lives? Well, let's first look at Simeon and Anna's example. At first glance, it appears like they really did nothing but sort of sit and wait for this Messiah to finally just sort of show up. And and it it appears that way that, you know, Simeon's just kind of been sitting in the temple waiting until Jesus shows up, you know, with Mary and Joseph. But biblical waiting isn't passive. Biblical waiting is always active. It is spiritual work. Look at what is involved in their waiting. Simeon is described as being righteous, devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He never wavered in his faith in God's promise that he would one day see the Messiah. He never gave up. He was hopefully persistent in his waiting. Anna is said to have spent her years in the temple waiting by worshiping day and night, fasting, praying. It's active waiting that these people are doing. And when we look for Jesus, and maybe you're looking for Jesus for the first time, maybe you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, and and you don't understand who Jesus is, and you have lots of questions about Jesus, you are really searching for Jesus for the first time. Or maybe today you are a believer. Jesus Christ lives in your heart. He is Lord of your life. But maybe you are looking to find Jesus in a fresh way. Maybe in a specific situation. Maybe in a new phase of life or in a particular relationship. You're looking for Jesus to show up in a unique and special way. Whatever the case, when we are searching for Jesus, we must do so with persistence and with patience. We have to open ourselves up to God through worship and prayer and other spiritual disciplines like fasting because, after all, it isn't so much that you and I are seeking for God because He's lost or He's hiding. That's not, that's not the kind of searching we're talking about. In fact, like I said earlier, God is searching out you. Remember in the Garden of Eden when God comes looking for Adam and Eve? Who's the ones who are hiding? Adam and Eve. Who's the ones searching? God. From our perspective, we feel like we're the ones who are searching God out, but in reality, God is looking for us. He's calling to us. And so we have to open ourselves up to hear His voice and respond. Along those lines of how we search, we also need to pay attention to where we search. How we search? We search with persistence, with patience. We search by opening ourselves up to God to listen to His voice, to respond to His call. But, but where do we search? Well, the Scriptures were obviously important to Anna and Simeon because they were both well-versed in the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. So they were searching for the Messiah in Scripture before Jesus was even ever conceived. Luke tells us in the opening verses of his gospel that he is writing this book so that we may know the certainty of the things we have been taught. In other words, the Bible, 
is the God-breathed, God-inspired, holy revelation of Jesus Christ to us. We can find Jesus in the pages of this book. It shares with us who He is, what He did, what He taught, and how He expects us to respond. So we can find Jesus by looking to the Scriptures. We also can find Jesus in community. You know, I think the lesson learned from the story that both Anna and Simeon and then later Mary and Joseph find Jesus, where do they find Him? Both, all, all four of those people find Jesus where? In the temple. Okay? Now, on a service level, that might say to people, well, if you want to find God, you've got to go to church, right? But that's, where's God? Well, He's obviously at church, Okay? But that's not the lesson for us to learn here because we have to remember that the the temple is more than just a place. It's more than just a sacred place. In fact, because of Jesus and because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, this building is, is not the only sacred place to find Jesus. Amen? Now, this is a sacred space, but you know what? So is... That out there. So is where you work. So is where you live. So is the desk you sit at in school, students. So is the lake where you may go fishing or the deer stand where you may be hunting. Because of Jesus Christ, every place is sacred. Every moment is sacred because we can encounter the Lord anytime, anywhere, any place. Amen? God is everywhere. The temple was not just a sacred place. It was a place for like-minded people to come together in community. And so where can we look for Jesus? We look for Jesus in the Scriptures. We look for Jesus in community. Where did Mary and Joseph go looking for Jesus? Among their relatives and among their friends. We can find Jesus together because we come together to wait and to watch to seek and to find, to worship and to follow. That's the value of coming together for regular Bible study and worship. It's not that this time and place is any more sacred, but it's that we come together and in a powerful way, Jesus is uniquely present when His followers gather together. Jesus said that, didn't He? He said, wherever two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in the midst of them. In some special way, when we gather together, Jesus is uniquely present with us. So it's in God's Word, it's among God's people that we most fully find Jesus. Where do we look next? Where do we find Jesus? We find Jesus in His Word, we find Jesus in community, Mary and Joseph. It's interesting, they go looking for Jesus among their family and friends, their relatives. Again, they're looking in community for Jesus. Sometimes we find Jesus in our family and friends, don't we? Sometimes it's in that conversation with someone. It's in that unique relationship that that Jesus reveals Himself to us and speaks a word to us. But then they also look for Jesus along the way that they have traveled. Reminds me of Jacob. Remember back in Genesis when Jacob was running away from his brother Esau because he had stolen the family blessing and the and, 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 the, and the, the ride of the firstborn, even though he was the secondborn. And so he's running for his life. And it says that he found a certain place. He got tired. He pulled off to the side of the road. And he went to sleep. 
And he had a dream, remember, about a ladder and about angels ascending and descending on it. And God spoke to him. And he wakes up the next morning and Jacob says, Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. It's along the journey. It's throughout our daily lives. It's, it's Monday and Tuesday afternoon. It's Wednesday morning. It's Thursday evening. Wherever we may be, those sacred moments and sacred places, every moment, everywhere, all week long, that we can find Jesus if we just open our eyes and open our ears. It doesn't have to be in a temple or a church. But they finally do find Jesus in the temple, don't they? But only because... That's where the teachers of the law were. And they were sort of, during the week of Passover, the teachers of the law would sort of have these open theological debates that anybody could come and listen in on and participate in. And so you've got all these rabbis sitting there and they're, they're talking about theology. They're probably talking about the Messiah. They're probably talking about you know, the consolation of Israel. When will God come and kick these Romans out? Those are probably some of the things they're talking about. And Jesus... I don't know, maybe as they were leaving the temple, maybe Jesus heard something and it caught his attention. And for three days, he's just sitting there absorbing and listening and learning and asking questions and contributing to the discussion to the amazement of these religious scholars. They're just amazed at the insight of this young man. Again, we find Jesus in community. We find Jesus in the moment. We find Jesus in the Word of God. And there's a promise here in these stories that when we search for Jesus with all our heart, we will find Him because Jesus longs to be found. That's the point of Christmas, isn't it? The point of Christmas is that God stepped down in human flesh to live among us. Emmanuel, God with us. God isn't distant. God isn't hiding God isn't lost or missing. He's right here. He longs for us to know Him. He doesn't make it hard. We need to only open our eyes and ears of our heart. Jeremiah 29 that that Tyler read this morning, You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. He says, You will be found by Me. It's a promise. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Will you find Jesus if you seek Him? Will you find Jesus if you seek Him? Will you find Jesus if you seek Him? Yes, you will. It's a promise. So what happens when we find Jesus? That's that's what I want us to end on this morning. What happens when we find Jesus? And I'm going to just share a few things from this story. First, when we find Jesus, we will be amazed. We will be amazed. Look at verse 33. There in Luke chapter 2. The child's father and mother did what? They marveled. They marveled. They were astonished. They were amazed. Look at verses 47 and 48. The religious leaders that are there in the temple with Jesus, it says everyone who heard Him was amazed. And when His parents saw Him, they were astonished. Now, Luke's gospel is sometimes called the gospel of amazement because more than any gospel writer, Luke uses language like this. In fact, there are five different Greek words that mean amazed, astonished, awed, 
marvel, wondered, you know, that sort of idea. There are five different Greek words that can mean those things. Luke uses them all. It's a theme throughout his gospel, this theme of amazement. Now, what I find particularly fascinating is that Luke was not an eyewitness to anything he wrote about. He never saw Jesus with his own eyes, never heard Jesus with his own ears. He wasn't there for any of this. In fact, let's look back, just turn a page maybe in your Bible, and let's look at the first four verses of Luke. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, 30 years later, Luke writes this. That's the earliest any Bible scholar will say that Luke wrote this because Luke was a companion of Paul, and Paul's missionary journeys are about 30 years after these events. And so Luke wrote this at some point while he was traveling with Paul. Thirty years. Now think about it. That means, since he, he focuses so much more, so much on amazement and astonishment, obviously as Luke, thirty years removed, are interviewing these people, they're still what? Amazed. This amazement comes out in them. It's not old hat. It's not, oh, I've got to tell this story again. It's not old news. It's still good news. It's still fresh news and relevant news and exciting news. And these people are so amazed still at who Jesus is and what Jesus did and said that Luke gets amazed. I mean, Luke's not even there, yet in his writing you can feel his amazement, his astonishment at who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It begs the question, why are we not more amazed at Jesus? How is it that in the church today the good news has become old news? The story's stale. The cross, commonplace. Where's our amazement? Is it any wonder the world isn't amazed by Jesus or marveling at our ministry or in wonder of our worship if we can't be astonished anymore at what Jesus said and did if we are no longer amazed by who Jesus is? Are you still amazed at Jesus? Is our God still an awesome God? I'm reminded of something Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. Bewilderment is true comprehension. I like that. Bewilderment is true comprehension. If we aren't bewildered by Jesus, do we really comprehend Him? Do we really know Him? Are we experiencing His presence and power? Are we spending time with Him, adoring Him and contemplating Him? You know, maybe, maybe the problem in the church today is that, is that in our culture, in our fast-paced life, we just want that quick five-minute devotional in the morning. We want that 30-second Jesus soundbite to start our day, and then we want to move on with our business. We've become a culture where, where the, the majority of Christians went to church three times a week. Sunday morning and Sunday night, Wednesday night. And now we're a culture where most churchgoers maybe go one time a month. We're no longer amazed. 
no longer astonished or too distracted by our life. We like our Jesus on the side and not too much. We want Him meek and mild. But Jesus isn't neat and tidy and He cannot be contained in our 21st century confines. Jesus can't be digested in a five-minute devotional, a 30-second soundbite, or a 140-character tweet. Jesus is too big for that. Jesus is a paradox. And that is why when we really get to know Him, we're bewildered by Him. We're astonished by Him. We're even maybe offended by Him and uncomfortable with Him. Look with me at Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, I want to read to you these two verses here, 25 and 26. Immediately, He stood up in front of them took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Okay, this is the the paralytic that Jesus has healed, the the man that couldn't walk. He takes up his mat and he goes home praising God. And everyone was amazed, there's that word again, and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, there it is again, and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Now, There are two Greek words here that are important for us to pay attention to. The first is called doxazo, which means to glorify, to magnify, or to praise. It's where we get the word doxology. Okay, We sing that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The doxology, because it's about doxus. It's about praising God. But the root word here, dikeo, means to think or suppose. So to glorify or magnify someone is to influence your opinion about them. It's to enhance their reputation. When we glorify God, we are making His name great. We are magnifying Him. And this word is found repeatedly throughout the New Testament. To glorify, to magnify, to make much of God. And the people see this man walk and they begin making much of God. But then there's another word. And the NIV translates it remarkable, which is, which is a little weak. This Greek word is the Greek word paradoxus, which is where we get what English word? Paradox. This Greek word occurs one time in all the Bible, right here in Luke 5.26. It's the only occurrence of this word in all of Scripture. This word means something that contradicts expectation. Something that's unexpected, incredible, unbelievable. It makes no logical sense. And Luke is using a play on words here. He's drawing a comparison. The people are glorifying God, but they can't quite make out what they think about Jesus. They can't figure Him out. He defies explanation. He doesn't fit their preconceived notions of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Now, what's truly brilliant is that from this point on, for the rest of five and all of six and half of chapter seven, Luke orders these stories in such a way that he gives us a list of paradoxes, a list of examples of how Jesus defies expectations. For example, he calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples. He says that he came for the sinners, not for the righteous. He and his disciples don't fast and pray as one would think a rabbi would do. They harvest grain on the Sabbath day. And then Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. Then Jesus Himself gives a list of paradoxical blessings and woes. The Luke and Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. 
Blessed are those who mourn, but woe to those who laugh. It's a paradox. Jesus says you're to love your enemies. Then we read a story where a Roman centurion has more faith than the most faithful Jewish people do. And then it ends with the account of John the Baptist questioning whether Jesus really is the Messiah. The one person that you would think would know Jesus better than anyone is sending friends to Jesus saying, are you the one we're looking for? The people are bewildered. Jesus is a paradox. Luke gives us examples and then he bookends it in chapter 7. Look at verses 29 and 30 in chapter 7 of Luke. Right after Jesus responds to John the Baptist's messengers, there's a parenthetical statement that's profound here. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. At the beginning, the people were filled with awe but perplexed by Jesus. But now, knowing Jesus better, they acknowledge that God's way is right. They realize it isn't Jesus that's backward. They're backward. They realize it's not the kingdom of God that's upside down. It's our world that is upside down. That brings me to the next thing that happens when we find Jesus. We move from being amazed to having to make a choice to either acknowledge His way is right or reject His way altogether. We add to our amazement acknowledgement. We confess, we agree with God that though it's unexpected and it's unexplainable, the way of Christ is the true way. It is the way we we must live. And we can make that choice, or like the Pharisees, we can reject Jesus' way and reject God's purpose for our lives. You see, when you're confronted with the gospel of Jesus, there is no middle ground. You must make a choice. You either must believe and acknowledge and accept and surrender to live His way, or you must reject Him, His way, and His purpose for your life. That's the choice that you make. There is no third choice. It's you you acknowledge it or you reject it. And that brings us to the third thing. When we find Jesus, we're amazed. We acknowledge His way is right, but it's not enough to stop there. We then must follow that way. We follow Him. We move from waiting to following. Think back to Simeon. Simeon and Anna, they represent the Old Testament world that was fading away. The Old Testament world where your faith was mainly expressed by waiting. Waiting for God to make good on His Word. Waiting for God to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies. That's what we focus on in Advent, right? Advent is a season of waiting. And we focus a lot on Old Testament prophecies. But we're no longer in Advent because Christmas has come. Jesus has been born. Now we're in Epiphany. We are no longer waiting. We're now following the star. We're now following the light of the world that has dawned upon us. For the Christian, our faith isn't a waiting faith. It's a following faith. Amen? It's a faith that expresses itself in following. Not that we don't have seasons of waiting. But we're not waiting for Jesus. We're waiting with Jesus. Jesus is here. He is within us. He waits with us. When Jesus invites us to come and see, He is inviting us to follow. Jesus is the way. He is the way that we're to walk upon. He's both the shepherd that leads us on the path and He is the path that we trod. 
The Christian faith is a following faith, and we are to be followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. When we catch a glimpse of who Jesus is, we're amazed and astounded. But then we must make a decision to acknowledge and follow His way. And finally, when we do that, we tell others about Him. Notice, once again, our theme of come and see, go and tell is beautifully exemplified. We saw it last week with the shepherds who came to see Jesus and then went to tell everybody. And look what, what Anna does right here in, in, chapter, in verse 36 and 37 and 38. It says, she came up to them. She gave thanks to God. She came and she saw. But then what does she do? She spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She came and and saw, but then she went and she told. What about you this morning? Are you searching for Jesus? Maybe you haven't realized before this morning, in all of your striving, in all of your empty pursuits, in all of your unfulfilled resolutions, that really you've been searching for Jesus. Maybe He has spoken to your heart today, and He said, I'm right here. Today the wait can be over. Today your search can end and you can begin to follow Jesus. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting to be found by you. He is inviting you to come to Him. And as we sing in just a moment, I would love nothing more than to help you find Jesus. Maybe this morning you need to come to Him for the first time and put your faith and trust in Him. Maybe this morning you're a follower of Jesus, but you... You've kind of strayed from the path. You've been sort of following your own way. Maybe this morning you need to come and re-acknowledge that His way is right. Maybe this morning you need some revival in your life. You need to be amazed and astounded at Jesus again for the first time. Maybe Jesus is calling you to follow Him and joining this church or to go into full-time Christian ministry. And I will tell you this, for all of us in this place, Jesus is calling us to follow Him every day He is calling us to come and see, and He is calling us to go and tell the good news of Christ. Let's pray together, and then we will stand and sing a song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And whatever that means for you today, if you've decided to follow Jesus, you come and respond. Father, we thank You so much for the the glory of this message. We thank You that You are a God that, that deserves our worship and praise. You are a God who is amazing, a God who is astounding, a God who at times just is a paradox. It just doesn't make sense to our finite human minds. We pray You would open our minds and help us to see who You are and help us to follow Your way and help us to go and tell others the amazing story of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Would you stand, would you sing, would you come?